You are listening to You are listening to The Pikes Podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Tay and I'm a longtime friend of Pikes and a travel writer and we're here for the Pikes Literary Festival and more specifically to sit down with one of the most exciting writers of our time. He doesn't really need an intro, but it's Irvin Welsh as well as Don Hindle, who's the creative director of Ibiza Rocks and Pikes. Irvin, what's your relationship with Pikes? Uh, yeah, just been coming here on and off for such a long time as um, everybody who kind of um, kind of gets into Ibiza and the kind of particularly the dance music scene uh, does, you know. So I think um, first time I came here was probably the early nineties, and uh, just you know intermittently since then. And what's the first thing that you can remember? Do you remember sort of? Tony being around the pool, do you remember? Yeah, he was always days? around the pool and the bar, and because um, despite uh, everything, I'm, I'm always quite an early riser, and I tried to get breakfast, so I used to see him a lot at breakfast, you know, he would have his eggs, and um, yeah, so yeah, he, he was a ubiquitous presence, he seemed to sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, astonishingly, he seemed to make time for everybody, uh, and be able to spend a lot of, give out a lot. Um, I think it's funny, the, the, I was watching Sonny the other day there and he has that very same quality, that he just seems to kind of um, be able to be very, very present when he's talking to loads of different people. You first started coming to Ibiza before you wrote Train Spotting, is that right? Well, the first time I came to Ibiza, I think, was 83, and the whole counterculture side of the island just went past me because it was like a, a daft kind of smutty boys holiday. It could have been Benidorm. Basically, San Antonio West End, you know, kind of uh, getting destroyed for two weeks, losing each other and everything else, and then ending up back on the plane. Um, it, you know, it was sunny and warm, but um, that was really all I remember of it. There was no sense that there was anything else happening here. Because uh, you do, you, you live in a very, when you're, you're young and you're with a bunch of your mates, you live in this kind of weird bubble. How many flights have you missed home from Ibiza? Oh, God, loads. Like, yeah, I mean, back in the manumission days, tons and tons of them. And uh, when I was here with Chris Needs, we could, Chris Needs and I couldn't go on a flight. We just literally could not get on a plane. I remember trying, I remember taking Chris Needs to the airport. I think we took him about four times, and every time they turned him away because he was he was he was just wasn't capable of actually holding his head up right. But one time um, we were we were in um, Istanbul in Turkey. We'd been doing a DJ thing, and um, the, the guy had a great description. He said, uh, you, we can't let you on this plane, Mr. Needs. And he said, because why, why? And he goes, uh, you're not flight worthy. And that's, that, that, that's always stuck in my mind. Always, whenever I get in touch with him, going anywhere, I say, are you flight worthy? I remember trying to apply him with loads of coffee and, and sort of give him a little slap across the face to try and wake him up. Chris they still wouldn't make take him, up him. When he was on one. We were sort of thinking, how hard can I slap him? How, yeah. does it become no, we were just thinking, we, he has to go. This has been like six yeah. months of uh, extended stay, I think. Yeah, when the pair of us tried to go on a plane, it was like kind of double trouble because we played off against each other. And we could, we could literally arrive at an airport three hours in advance and uh, still miss the plane. Cause you, actually, the, the, the longer... the the, the quicker you got to the airport, the worse it was because um, you spent more time in the bar. And, uh, you know, it's like, and then you kind of, you, you think, ah, oh, we're, we're good, we got to the airport early, we've got a couple of hours to spare. And then you're sort of, you know, but we're not going to drink because we're going to get on the flight. And then you go you go into the 
the sort of uh, the bar, and um, then you you know have a couple of pints, and you 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 go for a pee, and you suddenly realise you've got a wrap of coke or something in your pocket. Oh, we can't take that on the plane. We've got to do this first, and then it's like let's have another beer, and then you know, and it feeds into what you've had the night before and the night before that. So. <clears throat> completely fucked by the time you get on the plane again, and it's like sort of. Um, sometimes we we couldn't actually get off the plane, you know. We, you know, we were the last people to get off because we're like, oh. and they're shaking us and moving us and begging. You know, the, the people are trying to clean the plane for the return flight. It's like a taxi ride when you fall asleep in the taxi, and the taxi just taxi driver just wants to get you out so badly. Can I ask you a question, if that's all right? What was your favourite? Because we met back when we used to do Money Mission a long, long, long time ago. And, um, I mean, I've got some incredible memories. What are your best memories from that time? Uh, I think that um, when I was DJing, it kind of, you know, you had like 10,000 people jumping around and um, it was just, the atmosphere was just absolutely incredible, you know. And you've got kind of Mike and Claire doing the thing on the, the, the stage and... Uh, uh, F Federico uh, doing his Fernando. Fernando Fernando sorry doing his his own special kind of little thing too you know and it was like um, and I think that, you know I think this is a great asset house you know nobody the DJ is just uh, uh, just plays nobody's the DJ isn't the star and all that and I think well um, they're not really that interested in looking at a guy playing records in a box but all this is going on. But uh, it was such a great atmosphere because it, you know, everybody was completely fucked, basically, in the, in the club. And um, when you get 10,000 people kind of with that kind of energy, it's just fantastic vibe. Can you remember, I remember Chris Knees, did he, he broke his leg um, pole dancing? You remember that? He broke his leg pole dancing. It was like at the Manumission Motel, there was uh, me and Chris were, were staying there with the, the six Puerto Rican strippers who were doing the thing at, at Manumission. And it was like the early days, I think it was like just the first year of the hotel. And so there was, you know, there was nobody there, basically. It was just in, it, in its infancy. Um, so it was myself and... Um, and Chris and the six Puerto Rican strippers who were putting on this kind of show for us every night, you know. And uh, Chris decided to join in, kind of, and and tried to do a bit of pole dancing and broke his leg. Um, and I took him down to, I took him into San Antonio, and, and he had a wheelchair, in a wheelchair, basically. So we got him into San Antonio in a wheelchair. And we started hitting all these bars in San Antonio, and... Um, it kind of, I realised that as the night wore on, kind of realised that I'd lost Chris somewhere and I couldn't find him anywhere and it started to rain, you know, that kind of mad torrential rain like we had last night and and there's Chris kind of in the middle of this, in the middle of this square in the West End. Chris is there in the wheelchair but fast asleep in the torrential rain and uh, I thought, God, you know, the sun, the light's coming up and I thought, is he going to be pissed off at me if I kind of wake him and tell me? <laughs> so I shook him and I what the fuck? You left me! You left me! What the fuck did you left me? I said, I'm sorry, mate. It just was one of these nights that dissolved and all that, you know. And he's, he was, he's just absolutely soaked right through. And I kind of, um, I was kind of, he was, he was so pissed off, I was kind of pushing him at arm's length so he couldn't kind of turn around, <laughs> turn around and, and hit me. And <laughs> so, yeah, but we... Got him into a taxi and got him back. He also, I think one, it's turned into the Chris Nee show, but <laughs> he, um, he, he, I remember him being a giant white rabbit with a broken leg. Yeah, no, he had, <laughs> he had, he was obsessed with rabbits and still is, like, you know, he's kind of, um, like, you know, he just, uh, 
you know, he just has rabbits. He's always he always has like you know. Were you at the, Were you there when we went to um, we went to Bora Bora after um, after Carry On at Space and Derek Delarge got the notorious dildo stuck to his forehead. Did yes. you experience that? Yeah. yeah. Who, who is it? Was it John Carter? The, John the, Carter the, John super glued yeah. it to his forehead. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah and uh, I kind of uh, funny. I saw John at Glastonbury and. Um, we were kind of sort of talking about that story with Derek. And I saw Derek quite recently as well. He's back in London, kind of um, living a quieter life. Have any of these characters fed into, these real-life characters fed into kind of your characters? Or have any of these stories? Because I feel like there is a book in here somewhere. The, the Dildo story kind of um, sort of in uh, the my book, um, Dead Men's Trousers, came into you know, but, you know it, was, it was something that was inspired by that. Amazing. And what are you working on right now? There's a rumour that you're working on a screenplay. Is that right? Yeah, I'm working on loads of screenplays. I'm working on kind of... Uh, I've got three TV projects in America and two over here adaptations, uh, another novel and um, kind of just and music stuff, like kind of uh, techno with uh, Steve Mack. And are you doing the screenplay of Tony's? book with Matt as well. Yeah, we're, we're talking about it. We're going to try and sort of uh, see if we can come up with something that um, works cinematically because the big problem with um, doing, you know, we've found doing the creation stories, Alan McGee biography, is that um, if you make it about a bunch of people just getting fucked up, I mean, everybody really does that, but, you know, and it's like kind of, um, it becomes like, you know, the pleasure was all theirs type of thing to, to watch it. So it has to be cinematically arresting. And um, for me, the, you know, the most, you know, talking to Matt uh, Trollope about it, who's Tony's biographer, the most interesting part of it was um, his early life, actually before he came to the island in some ways, you know, the, 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 the stuff that kind of formed him and formed his mentality to sort of, um, it's almost like a field of dreams thing, you know, this is this, he just kind of built this place, basically. Um, which was kind of, in some ways, an extension of just like walking inside his mind, almost like yeah. So if we could do something that was interesting and arresting, you know, we, you know, we'd, we'd try and do that. And is it true that you create playlists for most of your characters? That's sort of your process of developing them. Yeah, yeah. I've got like a, I've got a standing desk now, and I've got the decks at the same height as the desk, so I can kind of um, I can move from writing to music and music to writing, and um, you know kind of one informs the other, basically. You're, in, you're actually staying in room 21, which is one of my faves. Yeah, it's a Freddie Mercury room, isn't it? It's it's a, a, it's well, a, actually, it's the Julio Iglesias room. It's the Julio Iglesias room. That's even better. It was yeah. built for him. <laughs> yeah. It was apparently. built for him, right. And it's got great access. So I have to continue the tradition of romance in this room, basically. Yeah, yeah, completely. Do you, um, what do you think about the changing face of Ibiza? Because lots of people have, because you've been here a lot over the years. Well, again, it's like, you know, we live in a different world and it is all about kind of event culture now and it is kind of about the commercialisation of it and that's just an inevitable thing. It's like kind of, um, it's part of it. And uh, in some ways it's like, um, I mean, you know, I think that uh, the Ibiza Rocks kind of thing has been a, a really good handover from Pikes because it's like they understand the kind of tradition of the place but it's also it kind of you know I mean it just looks a bit less tired and, and looks kind of zestier now and um, so it's, it kind of has given it 
a little bit of a boost, but it's kind of maintained the kind of spirit of the place. And where are you living at the moment? Are you a bit of a nomad, or how do you spend your time? Um, yeah, I mean, I've kind of uh, been all over the place recently. I've been, um, I've been living in America for 10 years, kind of in the last two in Miami, and um, I've been between... And since April, I've been between London, Edinburgh, and Barcelona, just kind of working on different things. So uh, I'll probably do that. I'm going to go back to Miami for a spell uh, at the end of this month and um, see how things go there. And then kind of come, you know, I want to move back over to this side, kind of um, to not necessarily the UK, but, but Europe or somewhere, you know, I want to kind of be out of America. Could we tempt you with a beefer? Ibiza, how long would I last? <laughs> My life expectancy would be even lower than it is now. What do you think of Edinburgh now when you go back, compared to obviously growing up and? Again, it's like you know, it's every city's kind of changed in, in that kind of way, and it's like, um, I mean, I, I kind of when you see tourists getting off in a town, you know, whether it's like you know, Edinburgh or Barcelona or Miami or kind of the cruise ships or kind of, you know, New York and all that, you think, this is terrible. They're all basically getting the same experience. You know, they're just going around and seeing these different things and they're kind of they're taking pictures of these monuments and then, they, you know, they, they go home with all these pictures that nobody really wants to see other than them. Um, and they don't even look at them again because there's so many you now. Uh, and they're just getting this kind of... Um, this packaged experience. I'll, 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 now I'll only go to a, a city if I know somebody in there that's going to show me around and what's all going on in the, in the real part of the city. And um, to me, like you know, the city centre of Edinburgh's kind of changed. It's like the the big Hogmanay thing has become an official festival now, and they build a big Berlin Wall around the city and charge people to get into it, and they have all these bands and see. And it just feels like a kind of any kind of rock gig, kind of anywhere rock and roll gig anywhere. Um, when it used to be this mad anarchy of people just kind of drinking whiskey and snogging each other and shagging each other in doorways and all that stuff. And now that's all, that's kind of gone. Everybody's that kind of very sanitised way. And I see it in London as well, you know, I'll be living in, um, in um, kind of sort of Gospel Oak Hampstead and uh, you walk down through Kentish Town and Kentish Town was, was quite a, a rough and ready kind of Irish area. And now it's like everywhere in central London, it's all hipsters and it's all, people are all very nice. You know, there's no real kind of sense of threat. No, you just walk you walk home and everybody's, hello. And it's like everything's a little kind of, everything is, in London aspires to be a village. It's like kind of, you, you know, it's, it's almost like kind of, well, you're in Kentish Town Village or kind of Gospel Oak Village or, you know, it's all, they, 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 they rebrand everything in this very rustic way, which is strange for a city, you know, to do that. Can we talk about your music a little bit? So you spent a long time as an Acid House DJ, but obviously you have a new um quite different project how did that come about and what was the genesis of that yeah i mean it's like um uh i was at the amsterdam dance event and uh with uh carl loban from dj magazine is an old pal of mine and uh, danny rampling dj who's an old friend and i met this guy steve steve mark two years ago and we've just kind of um sometimes you just gel with somebody you know we started talking about what we liked about sort of um what we liked about music and what we didn't like about it, and um, 
it was like um, what we didn't like about a lot of dance music now is made by people who don't dance. It's basically kind of nerdy kids in the bedroom with all their software packages coming out with producing something. And I think because of that, you miss some kind of um, even though some of it is technically brilliant, you miss a kind of spirit about it, craziness about it. Uh, so we we decided we just kind of we decided we we're going to make a, a dance record with Danny and. Um, and we kind of did that, and then we just decided to, you know, we've never been out of the studio since, two years later. We've just knocked out two albums now, you know, so one comes out in uh, Christmas, and the other comes out in the summer. So you believe it, you really sort of cross-fertilise, don't you, the music, the film, the no the writing? You know, it's like, I think that uh, it's technology, I think they all feed into each other, you know, it's like kind of, um, I was... I was played in bands for years and was a terrible musician. I didn't have any kind of fretboarding or keyboarding skills. Um, and I couldn't sing. And um, But it's, you, you don't need to have musicianship skills to do that now. You just have to have the creativity because the technology enables you to do that. You can sit to, you can sit on a, with a package and a keyboard and just, you know, and just by sampling and looping and kind of, you know, you, you can build something, you know. In the same way that, you know, with, with writing, I could never have been a writer with a pen, you know. The word processor changed that and let me into that because I wouldn't have had the, I wouldn't have had the concentration to go every, over everything long, write everything down longhand and then send it away to get typed and then correct it, and, you know. So it's like um, everything, you know, things become instantly opened up and it becomes more about creativity now rather than craft. And I, uh, one of the things that I really strongly believe in is that collaborative um, aspect of, any, of a lot of creative processes. I mean, one of the things that we, we're doing at Pites a lot is bringing either like-minded or just people that we really believe in into, the, into a sort of melting pot. Is that something that you do too? Yeah, I mean, it's like because... Um, because, you know, primarily I work as a novelist. I mean, you'd write a novel, you're completely on your own. It's like the kind of... Um, the one thing, maybe other than painting, that's the most kind of personal thing in a way. And you're, and you're in this world with people that don't exist, which is not kind of uh, good for your sanity all the time. <coughs> and it's like, um, if you're in there, you know, it's like you kind of... Uh, it's quite a kind of, you know, there's a kind of power in it because you're this godlike kind of presence you're creating this world and populating it with these people, but it's very lonely as well, you know, and um, it's like if you if you work on film or if you work in music, it's a whole different thing. You have to collaborate and you have to kind of, uh, and it's good to have both. It's good to be able to do both. Do you tend to work on one novel at a time or do you work on a few and then kind of see which one takes off? Basically, the, the second, I mean, I kind of... Um, I've got a lot of writing projects and I don't know what they're going to be, whether they're going to be novels or stories or even screenplays and uh, I just let them kind of gain a kind of critical mass and one, one will take over and then that's the one I'll go with. How much are you influenced by other people or is it all your... Do you trust your own instinct above everybody else? Yeah, I mean, you have to pretty much trust your own instincts but you have to kind of be informed by the stuff that other people are doing as well, yeah. I mean, um, the the literary festival at Pites. This is the second year, obviously, when you were there at the start. We've we've had a, a sort of a lot of rain this year, but I think one of the things that we really introduced was the sort of the Spanish um, a sort of contingency in the Spanish day, which was really important, I think, for us being in Spain. You know, you don't want to impose an English. Yeah, you don't want to be all imperialistic about it. You know, yeah. you kind of want to. You know, and I think it's great. I think. Um, I think it's really important to do that because it is, you know, it's, it's always been this 
kind of big cultural melting pot, isn't it? And it shouldn't be too Anglo-centric. And uh, I think it's a great thing to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's one of those things that we really want to develop year on year. And, you know, it's all about being boutique, being small, bringing um, people of interest that have a sort of... They've come, in a way, from a music background because that's what we've all sort of come out of. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think it was great having Carl talking about songwriting. You know, it was kind of. Um, and again, it's like you know when, when we're talking about you know what we were saying earlier about kind of creativity, kind of um, being the thing. It doesn't really matter where you you kind of come from, you know. And uh, I was just talking to, you know, talking to Carl about books and all that, and he's much better read than me, basically, and that informs a lot of um, stuff that he does, you know. I was going to say, um, there's also a lot of workshops at the festival. Would you ever consider teaching them, or have you taught before? Yeah, I mean, I hate teaching. I hate it, like, you know, because um, I taught in Chicago to get a green card for the university there for six months, and um, I remember going in and saying to to everybody, like, um, anybody that was in their early 20s, saying, you're wasting your money and time being here. Uh, just go and do something, have a life, work in a bar, kind of, you know, and uh, go travelling and get into mischief and all that. Um, and then the dean coming in and saying to me, like, you know, why are you telling students to leave the course? The you know, thing about the university is that we want, we, we want students to come and to pay, you know. And I said, well, it's just, you know, it's useless to them, you know. And it made me think, like, you know, the, the kind of... The universities are just banks, basically. They're, they're just extensions of the bank. And they're after the, these kids' parents' money and their assets, and that's the way they get them. Um, through kind of, you know, giving them kind of worthless courses that aren't going to do anything for them. Um, see, I think, I think with writing, and um, it's, not about the, it's not about the learning how to do it, it's about the desire, it's all about the motivation. And you can have somebody, anybody can write a good story, but the thing is, did they really want to after they've written it? You know, teaching some of the people that I had, they were all brilliant writers. They could write technically, and they had, you know, they could write a good story. But they didn't have anything to write about. They didn't have the life experience to sort of write about anything. Um, and uh, you know, it's like you just and a lot of them didn't really want to be. You know, they wanted to be best-selling novelists, you know, and, and make a lot of money, but didn't actually want to be writers. They weren't kind of prepared to put the time in. And if you if you put the time in at anything, you find a way to do it. You, you learn by doing. You find a way th through that. But the motivation has to come from you. You are listening to the Pikes Podcast. So that's a really nice place to end it. Thanks to Irvin Welsh and Rebecca Tay, who is joining me, Don Hindle, at the Pikes Literary Festival. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, and there'll be one out every single Monday um, for the coming weeks. <laughs>